If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, my name is John Torpy and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's topic is the UN at 75, examining its history through a women's lens. We're fortunate to have with us today Ellen Chesler, who's a senior fellow at the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies. She holds a PhD in history, but has spent her career in government and philanthropy, working principally on global women's issues. She is author, most notably, of Woman of Valor, a celebrated biography of birth control pioneer Margaret Sanger, and co-editor, most recently, of Women and Girls Rising, an anthology which is part of RBI's Global Institutions series. She will be talking with Jocelyn Alcott, the, the Margaret Taylor Smith Director of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies and Professor of History and International Comparative Studies at Duke University. Professor Olcott is a contributor to Women's and Women and Girls Rising and author of her own book, International Women's Year, The Greatest Consciousness-Raising Event in History, which examines the history and legacies of the United Nations First World Conference on Women in 1975 in Mexico City. Thank you for joining us today. We envisioned today's podcast as a conversation between Ellen Chesler and Professor Olcott, and I turn things over to them now. I'm Ellen Chesler, and it's a pleasure to be here with Jocelyn Olcott um, to talk about uh, the history of women at the United Nations on uh, its 75th anniversary this year. Uh, 75 years ago, the UN was born out of an improbable idea, one that seems increasingly improbable as we resort in uh, 2020 to so many authoritarian states uh, and uh, states that are not supporting the kind of liberal internationalism that the UN represents. Um, it's improbable ideas that sovereign nations might come together to shape a new world order secured morally and legally by human rights instruments and safeguarded by an impressive and unprecedented array of new development and humanitarian institutions. There were only four women among the 160 public delegates who gathered in San Francisco in April of 1945 during those faithful last days of World War II but with support from a robust community of civil society activists, they were able to inscribe women's rights into the charter of the organization and affirm in its preamble 
faith and fundamental human rights, in the dignity of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women and of nations, large and small. Uh, Jocelyn, I wanted to ask you as a historian uh, of this global um, development uh, to comment on why this was so important, um, but yet is actually only recently gaining the attention of scholars. Uh, what are the main points emerging from the new historiography on global women's activism uh, and from your own work? Um, yeah, well, thank you for having me. This is a really great moment to be having this conversation. Uh, it, it, this is uh, indeed, I think, uh, an area, for, particularly for historians, that's really, really flourishing. There's a recent book by a wonderful historian at UCLA named Catherine Marino called Feminism for the Americas that really gets into precisely this question, which is the ways that particularly women from Latin America in the early days of the UN, you know, at the at the conference in San Francisco and in those early days of the UN, tried to push a vision of human rights that was particularly rooted in anti-imperialism and anti-racism. And that those that those conversations about what human rights could be, the promise of a human rights agenda were really were really central there. And then and and then of course as as you know that they really insisted that women's rights be included under the rubric of human rights, which had been um, sort of more exclusively seen as political rights and, and um, rights to expression and so forth. So that some of these more uh, personal rights, rights to labor, that sort of thing, were, were included in that rubric. Um, and so it's a, it's a really critical moment also for the development of a, what we now think of as the kind of feminism, of course, many of the women in that period didn't refer to themselves in that in that way, but thinking about the ways that women could form connections of solidarity across some pretty deep divides. What was the role of Eleanor Roosevelt in all this? Well, I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, sort of famously said, you know, described women's rights as human rights, and and really insisted on um, on pressing um, women's rights on the, the human rights agenda. I think there's, as, as historians of this period will know, there were a lot of debates about what it would mean to, to include women under that rubric that it might not. So the most conspicuous example was that motherhood and maternity, both pregnancy and childbearing, but also the demands of motherhood, you know, as, as children were growing up, needed to be protected and would what would it mean to say that they wouldn't enjoy those protections and eleanor roosevelt was really critical in insisting that 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 women still be considered as part of the human rights agenda um, and that's that's i think has been it's, it, it it remains a, a critical debate i have to say i don't think this is something you know we can see this now and, and we can talk about what some of the economic implications of this are I don't actually think that's a question that's been fully resolved other than um, uh, often having women kind of incorporated into the economic sphere in what remains a pretty masculinized space. But, but there's no question that Eleanor Roosevelt was a critical player in, in pressing this agenda. It's true though that uh, it was women from India who followed those Latin American women um, when it came uh, to setting up an institutional structure in insisting that women have a separate structure, the Commission on the Status of Women, quite independent in their own space, uh, away from the overall human rights agenda. That's also been a controversial 
decision over history. Some people felt that it uh, created a, a dual track with women being second class citizens, but most, I think, today argue that it was critically important because it gave women leadership positions and the ability to really define human rights uh, in a way that didn't use male as a default. In other words, really move away from the political and civil notions of human rights to embrace the uh, economic and social and cultural issues uh, that are critical to women achieving full equality. Um, you know, these ideas seem to matter a lot to me. They uh, shape aspirations and drive progress. Um, they're, I think, in many ways among the UN's most important legacies uh, and in, in helping to advance conditions nationally and regionally uh, on the ground to help advance rights and opportunities for women and girls. Um, I think it's important maybe to, to point out here that when the UN talked about equal rights for men and women, not a single country in the world provided women with constitutional protection against discrimination in its uh, ch own charter. Um, the United States, as we know famously, still doesn't have an Equal Rights Amendment, uh, although it today is the only uh, industrialized country in the world in um, that position. Uh, only 30 of the organization's original 51 members guaranteed women the right to vote uh, in 1945. Um, and formal diplomacy among nations was still the province of men, most of whom were uh, in the West, particularly, or at least in the United States, um, had a disposition sort of against the notion of compromising your own sovereignty to enter an international space. Um, it seems to me that this landmark claim that women uh, be viewed as necessary in an appropriate matter of international concern, not as a category or a gender privileged and protected by local sovereignty and especially by local traditional laws and religious practices, um, laws and practices is really, really important. Um, can you talk about some of the concrete gains that occur after uh, the Commission on the Status of Women is afforded and after women are designated in the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, specifically, not just, you know, as a category uh, subsumed under the sort of notion of, of rights of men or droit d'homme, as uh, the French would say. Yeah, you've raised a, a lot of um, really critical questions here. One of them, of course, this question of whether you, you form the Commission on the Status of Women and whether women's rights will be considered as a separate question is and it, not just the United Nations, but in many, many social movements and many, many structures remains a, a question. And I, um, you know, it, it's often compared to like, you don't want to segregate out um, a, a separate racial organizations or separate. So, so why would we have separate organizations for women? Um, and, and that is a, a, a question that, that gets debated again and again. Um, and for the Commission on the Status of Women, it was really critical to have that space to open up any place in the UN agenda for women's issues. They were completely occluded for the most part until the, the Commission starts really putting those questions on the agenda in a really explicit way. 
Uh, the United States, as you pointed out, does not tend to sign any of these human rights uh, um, conventions. So uh, it, it has signed a few of them, but many of them that have to do with the rights of children and the rights of women um, around various issues, the United States does not sign. But but the, the Commission Status of Women was critical in pushing for things like the political rights of women and the rights of women to maintain their own nationality and so forth. And those were um, those were critical developments. I do think there's a, a a really complicated question here, and that is the legacy of the very liberalism that creates the United Nations, which is that under liberalism there is really a, a pretty clear inscription of a public sphere and a separate private sphere, and that the private sphere is not meant to be the province of um, of governance and and it's it's meant to be um, set apart from that and and really one of the ways that the United Nations could sustain its legitimacy was to ensure governments that this wasn't a new form of imperialism. In other words, the fear, particularly after the League of Nations, was that this would just be another way that Western countries were pushing a cultural agenda on the rest of the world. And the the way to ensure that that wasn't the case was to say, look, you'll you'll remain sovereign on all of these questions that we consider private matters that are about family formations and marriage practices and religious practices and so forth. And those are important assurances to offer. They, of course, ran very much into an agenda that was important to a lot of women that were at the UN, that were on the Commission of Status of Women, of trying to combat some of these practices. So that polygamy, for example, which is, of course, recognized in many religions, or in several religions anyway, um, was something that for a lot of women, it seemed like a form of exploitation. Child marriage, which is allowable in certain cultures, is something that the Commission of Status of Women has fought against strenuously. And so th there's a way in which the United Nations becomes this space that um, women are, are, are trying to gain rights, gain certain protections for women without sort of touching that third rail of the cultural issues that the United Nations is not meant to weigh in on. It's a difficult dance. It's, it's not an easy thing to pull off. Um, but that's, I think, been some of the terrain of, of contestation there. But it seems to me that the true... Uh normative revolution of the last 70 years is that in fact uh, we've moved beyond that conversation um, and the notion that behavior that uh, puts women's lives in jeopardy and that prevents their self-realization um, even if it's in the private sphere that the personal is political as we say in the west is now pretty much a universally shared notion um, and that uh, countries that 189 countries for example have signed the convention to eliminate all forms of discrimination against women. And in the early years, um, of course, it, it, we're getting a little ahead of our story here in terms of the timeline, but, but let's simply because I think we, we need to put to bed this sort of issue of um, cultural pluralism versus universalism. 189 countries have signed and in the early days, many of them reserved as use the language of, of human rights implementation. You can sign a treaty, but create reservations about what you won't address. And some of them did, many of them did actually in the early years with respect to family law issues. But many of those reservations have now been rescinded. And I think they're pretty much as a result of the work of women uh, at the UN and on the ground in women's movements. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a turning point. Again, we're getting a little out of chronology here, but 
there's certainly a turning point in the 1993 UN um, Human Rights Convention in Vienna. And I think that um, organization, you know, Charlotte Bunch was, of course, really prominent in this in this fight. But but in in co collaboration or in solidarity with women from all over the world of advocating this women rights or human rights campaign. And I, I think that was made in part because what had happened in Yugoslavia made it evident that certain forms of gendered violence were um were reshaping the way that even geopolitics was being done. Um, but but that created this opening, I think, you know, pushed by people like Catherine McKinnon. Um, it created this opening for a lot of women to say, look, domestic violence is also a human rights violation, that we should be free from violence also in our homes, not just in migrant camps. And and I think that that was, um, it seems, I think you're right, it seems uh, completely normative now. But Really, only 20 years ago, it didn't actually, or I guess maybe 30 years ago, it didn't actually seem that normative. And I, I think that that's really been um, a, a triumph that, that a triumph in a moment when there weren't a lot of triumphs, I should add. So uh, that's been a, a real gain. And it builds on, I mean, maybe this gets us back into chronology. It does build on what was really a like brick by brick effort on the part of these women in the Commission of Status of Women and organizing with governments, you know, one government at a time to go from the Declaration on the, on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women to what is now CEDAW and to get countries to sign on and to remove their reservations to that. And CEDAW now, the, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women now remains a very important reporting instrument you know, less maybe the United States, but in countries all over the world, it is a way that women organizing in civil society can make demands on their governments. And that is critically important. Um, and on, on, in particular, on questions about gendered violence. You know, there's a lot of debates about what that should look like, but it, it's, been, it's been a really important tool on the ground. I want to get back to CEDAW and to these issues, but um, let's fill in some of those brick by brick uh, issues, particularly because your book really about the first of the four uh, now famous UN uh, international uh, meetings or uh, conventions on women uh, that took place in 1975 um, is uh, such an important, I think, contribution to the historiography here. Take it all so seriously and you explain uh, not only the intellectual output that was important, but many of the, the practical and institutional measures that took place as a result of that first convention and that have allowed for, you know, practical impacts on the ground from these ideas. So a little bit about, I mean, the, the, how did the two UN development decades uh, around women, UN decades of women come about? What aspect of them addressed political and civil issues and how important was the transition from that to the idea of the impossibility of, women, of, of development, larger development of the global South moving forward without addressing women's issues. Getting to the point of that this is, wasn't just a matter of the human rights of women, but that the larger agenda of progress um, that the UN had for the developing world, where we've moved now into the 1960s and 70s. So we're talking about of the independent nations um, after colonialism. Um, the UN moves from its original 51 members to its now 196 members over this period. 
is that impacted by the women's agenda? Yeah. So, so as you put out, basically there are these two huge movements that are crashing into one another at, by the 19, by the mid 1970s. One of them, and, and certainly the, the more widespread is the de movement for decolonization that's happening all over the world. And that is, um, and that becomes a kind of, it's, it is obviously first and foremost, a movement for geopolitical decolonization, but it's also a movement for decolonization from informal empire. And it becomes a kind of metaphor for other forms of decolonization, right? So, um, you know, a lot of uh, feminists talk about, particularly sort of radical or socialist feminists talk about decolonizing women's minds. Um, decolonization is a metaphor for anti-racist campaigns that, that the, the challenge to all forms of imperialism, meaning cultural imperialism, economic imperialism, as well as more formal geopolitical imperialism, by the 60s is just a full-throated, you know, it's really, I mean, it kind of crests in 75 with, you know, Angola and all of that, but it's, it's, that's really um, something that has just swept the whole planet. And I think that that, and, and in particular at the UN, it, it utterly remakes the UN, because the UN, as you just pointed out, goes from being a fairly you know, small number of countries to just mushrooming over the course of those, those couple of decades as new nations get created out of former colonies. And those new nations, you, know, you still have just structurally for people who don't think too much about the UN, you still have the Security Council, which is still you know, basically imperial countries, if you count, depending on how you count China. But, um, and uh, and then, but then you have the General Assembly, which with each new nation that gets formed, there's a new member state there, and and the General Assembly in particular becomes a space of pretty radical geopolitical politics. The um, what was at the time called the Non-Aligned Movement has a, a sort of choral analog or whatever in within the UN called the Group of 77, and the Group of 77 is mostly. Um, what at that point called themselves third world countries, we now refer to as global south countries, but and who advocated for what they referred to as third worldism, which was um, a real challenge to the, um, or I should say a real insistence upon economic and political sovereignty in those spaces. And so, so that's happening. And I, I will say that part of that also, it means that the dynamics within the General Assembly get pretty raucous. I mean, it's uh, that it's there are really heated debates. Probably the best known is is by the end of 75, the, this um, description of Zionism as a form of racism, which of course leads to huge explosions of the UN. But but that that it becomes a, a very a space of very intense um, debate and particularly of a lot of uh, sentiment against the so-called first world and against the United States most pointedly. So that's happening, but it also is a space of the Cold War dynamics, right? So there's also this US-Soviet rivalry that's happening. At the same time, the other big crashing, crashing wave, maybe that's not the way to put it, but um, is, is the women's movement, which has all of these different strands to it, uh, but, but in particular in places like the United States and in France and in um, Australia and places like that, there is this growing women's movement that also is emerging in other places with different manifestations. So there's a women's movement that's quite prominent in Iran. There's a women's movements that are emerging all over Latin America, often in response to, to authoritarian regimes there and to human rights abuses in those places. Um, and those movements are 
also seeing an opportunity to use the UN to make demands. And so that's the sort of broader context that this all comes into. And one of the things, the reason that geopolitics matters in all of this is that as women make more and more demands, and it's clear that they are, much as the civil rights movement was in the United States, are this rising political force, it is clear that one of the ways that political actors can gain credibility is if they have a good record on women's rights. Um, so much in the way that the, you know, we talk about the Cold War civil rights movement, um, that the US and the Soviet Union had a kind of rivalry about racial discrimination, women's rights became a space of some rivalries. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is that in particular, these mid-level geopolitical actors that you don't really think about much, so the ones I talk about that were most prominent are, are Australia, Iran, and Mexico, um, decide that women's rights is a place that they can kind of gain space on the geopolitical stage. And they start making, like putting a lot of resources really into advocating for women's rights, creating uh, a kind of political infrastructure for women's rights campaigns. And so these two dynamics really uh, sort of weave together at this moment in the 1970s. And then I would say the third part of this, as you gestured toward, is that the 60s and 70s are referred to as the two decades of development. Um, and this is uh, in, in UN speak or whatever, is this idea that the ways that, that the post-colonial world is going to so, you know, in huge quotation marks, going to catch up with the, with the first world or with the global north is going to be through these various development programs. And the thing that happens that's most monu monumental there or momentous there is that I would say in particular, there's an economist named Esther Bozrup but, that, that talks about this, but in particular, that women start pointing out that a lot of these development programs have a pronounced gendered aspect to them and that they tend to exacerbate gender hierarchies and gender inequalities. And so in the context of trying to think about economic development in these spaces that had formerly been colonies or that remained informal economic colonies or in some ways had their sovereignty compromised, women were trying to insist that whatever programs were created to address those issues also attend to the effect they had on women and on families and on gender relations more generally. And so that's the bigger picture. I, I, that's, I realize that's all a, a lot, but, but that's the general um, picture of what's happening at that moment. Well, I think it emerges from some of, of the uh, oral histories and other uh, documents that I've been looking at lately is my sense that women, uh, the women's movement provides some measure of unity for uh, East-West Soviet American uh, uh, actors to come together, uh, North-South as well. That um, obviously starts, this UN starts with the notion that we don't want Western cultural appropriation, but women from the global South come up and say, this isn't about the West. This isn't about uh, middle-class women's issues in the United States. It's about the fundamental development of our nations, of our region uh, without us, as actors without equality uh, for women, uh, we can't possibly achieve our larger uh, objectives with respect to progress or economically or in terms of democratic practice that, you know, that old adage, um, free men are not born of slave mothers comes in here. And women make the point that families incubate citizens, 
that good actors in democracies and good actors in free economies can't have values based on oppression of women and girls and their families. And I think these ideas, you know, overcome some of the fault lines, north-south or east-west. We used to call them east-west fault lines. Today, we call them north-south fault lines. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting, and it becomes really notable as the General Assembly becomes much more divided or contentious, as the general, as people, as the fights get more intense in the General Assembly, it becomes notable that the Commission on the Status of Women is a space of real cooperation. It's the thing that people always talk about with the Commission on the Status of Women, that it, it is, um, it operates generally by consensus. And there's a lot, there's an effort to, to come to agreement about things. You, and, and that's just not the way that the UN is tending to go, particularly on the General Assembly side um, during the same period. And I, you know, I think that, I guess I would be a little bit more cautious about trying to imagine, the, you know, certainly the idea that there's some global sisterhood is not really what's happening there. Every time, you know, on, on, as you get into individual issues, there's a lot of um, differences of opinion and there's a lot of concern about making sure that there is cultural sensitivity and so forth. And, and of course we have to recognize that still today and certainly in the 1960s and 70s, the women who were populating the commission status of women, the women who kind of made their way into the UN bureaucracy were often elite if they were coming from, well, they're mostly leave if they're coming from anywhere, but certainly if they were coming from the post-colonial countries, they were coming from an, uh, from the highly educated families and um, usually from elite class backgrounds. And so there tended to be a little bit more agreement among them about, you know, the value of higher education for women, for example, and, and this sort of thing, um, the ability of women to control their family size. But these remain contentious issues. I, I, I think it's, I think it's important not to see the the commission certainly, but the UN more generally is standing in for what I, with today still, um, but but remains some pretty um, fraught debate over these questions. Maybe, maybe I should mention just a few names, just so um, our listeners don't hear only abstractions. I mean, who are some of the important players? Uh, women like. Um, Nehru's sister, uh, who becomes the first woman president of the General Assembly in 1953, for example, uh, Madame Pondit is her name. Uh, and there's a new biography written about her, which is exciting. I'm, I'm anxious to see that come to publication. Um, uh, Letitia Shahani, who was the sister of uh, one of the presidents of the Philippines, Ed Ramos, um, educated at Wesley, but you know, in a hugely important player um, because she tried to speak across class lines and divisions in her own society, as did Madame Pundit, and speak for the voices of the subaltern or, or you know, working women um, in their regions, sort of introducing, as you suggest in your book, um, these women introduce notions of intersectionality before we had that language, um, you know, out that gender, class, and race um, were all factors uh, in the oppression of uh, the women and men of their countries, and that all had to be considered together. You want to talk a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the people that I tended to focus on, um, I mean, there were uh, a lot, you know, there were several women, uh, Jean Cissé, of course, who presided over the General Assembly at one point, and women like that that were more prominent in the UN itself. I think the other thing that starts happening in the 1970s, though, is that because this is the other maybe big dynamic, is that there's this explosion of civil society organizations and there's more women coming into the UN through these civil society organizations. So uh, women like Fatima Mernisi and Devaki Jane. I mean, Devaki Jane, who's written a wonderful book about women in the United Nations and uh, is an economist from, from India and who was, has remained involved in, in a lot of the debates. And in fact, started Dawn, we can talk about her, her effect you know, after the, the conferences as well. But, but she really pushed the idea that the UN needed to be listening to, to women of, I mean, she is a lead and she would, say, would be the first to say that uh, the UN needed to be listening to more women from non-elite backgrounds. But I think that people like Devaki Jane, Wangari Matai, who also was prominently involved in this stuff from the Greenbelt movement, talks about the, the way that she came into all of this, that she thought that she was going around to talk to women about women's issues as part of the UN Year of the Woman. Um, and what she found was that it actually ended up relating to all of these other environmental issues and issues about cultiva cultivation and so forth. And so I think what happened as women got out more into these non-elite networks that it, it broadened the scope of consideration from the issues that were pertained most to the women who tended to populate the commission status of women. So issues about access to education and professional opportunities and ability to control family size and so forth, that it broadened out to a, a, a much uh, more diverse set of issues. And that, and I, I will say, I do think that the growth of the civil society organizations and the diversity of the civil society organizations as problematic as they can be in certain situations, that's really been critical for diversifying the kinds of questions that the UN and its agencies have to attend to. Absolutely. But I think what's uh, fascinating about your book is that you do point out that the, the sponsorship by the UN of these international conferences gives a place for civil society to have parallel meetings, international meetings. It starts with 4,000 women in 1975, but by Beijing in uh, 20 years later, it's 30,000 women in civil society and that those parallel conferences become cauldrons for developing a global movement, including uh, regional organizations um, that play a big role, like the one you just mentioned, Dawn. Maybe you should say just one or two more words about for anybody who's listening to this. Women in a New Era, it's, a, it's, it's called Development Terms of Women in a New Era. It's, um, I could go on all day about Dawn. I think it's a really fascinating organization. I, I want to underscore something that you just said, which is that I think there's a, a, a tendency to think about the United Nations as a conservative in the lowercase b sense of the word organization and that it is, um, you know, it's a huge bureaucracy and the, the kind of time of, of the UN is of building things in a really um, intentional policy oriented way. And I think for women who, or people who are more engaged in sort of movement politics, um, it, the UN can look can seem a little frustrating or a little tame or whatever. I, but what's, what I think is critical to remember is that the UN essentially creates these spaces, it builds an infrastructure 
that activists come into and make their own. And what happens in 75, and I, I talk about this a bit in the book, but I think it's a really critical moment, which is that initially, you know, it's, it's one of the first UN conferences to have a parallel NGO forum. There was, there had been one at the um, Stockholm Environment Conference, and then there had been one at the Bucharest Population Conference that actually uh, for the, on the U.S. side, a lot of the women, in fact, a lot of women who organized the, the NGO forum in Mexico City had been at that Bucharest conference, and that's sort of what inspired them to think this was an exciting thing to do. And initially they thought, well, this is going to be a, a small thing. It's going to be a few days, and it'll be just before the women's conference, and it'll be, we'll invite what are called consultative status NGOs, so NGOs that have um, a recognized status within the United Nations, and maybe a few other invited organizations that seem particularly relevant to women's issues, but it'll be small. And then as they started to organize, they thought, well, it should be bigger. It'll be, it'll be parallel with the conference itself. So it was like two and a half weeks. And, but it'll still be consultative status NGOs that have, the, and it'll include all the big ones and then ones that have specialized interests like WILP, the uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom and organizations like that. YWCA is a big one. And then at some point, they, the, organizer, the main organizer, who's this uh, woman named Mildred Persinger, who recently passed away, unfortunately, but who was had been involved with the World YWCA, made the decision, I mean, not on her own, but in consultation, that they would open it up, that it wouldn't just be, uh, so fairly close to the event itself, that it wouldn't just be consultative status NGOs, it would be any organization that wanted to come, um, and that you could you know, you just register your organization. If you're, you have any kind of women's organization anywhere, you could come to this, this civil society conference. And then at some point right before the conference, they opened it up to anybody who wanted to come with no organization affiliation whatsoever. And a few days into the conference, they opened it up to anybody, whether or not they registered. So it was sort of a free-for-all. And I, it led to some of the dynamics that people got found very upsetting, which is there ended up being a lot of conflict and controversy, but it also meant that there was an unprecedented encounter across political and cultural divides, across races, across geographies, in this space that women really started to think about what what agendas they shared and what agendas they needed to work out separately. But I, and I, I think a lot of people found that troubling, um, but, the, but I would argue, as you know, that that's actually one of the great legacies of this, is that people learned that they could work across these huge divides. Well, it was generative. I think the word you used in your book, as I remember, um, that it really generated a, a conversation that had never and, uh, taken place before, and also across historic divisions that most people thought would never be uh, accommodated or crossed of, of class and race and geography. Um, I mean, well, and having spent my life in some of the international organizations that have also worked to generate um, more engagement uh, with women on the ground in countries, uh, organizations like the International Women's Health Coalition, um, you know, there's a global movement for each of the many issues that affect women's lives, uh, women's health and reproductive health, uh, human rights and violence, uh, economic parity uh, and political participation. I mean, you know, we now have this extraordinary global movement with actors, you know, at all levels, globally, regionally, and on the ground. Um, let, let's just talk about a few of the other uh, legacies of these UN conferences for women. Um, 
are important. One is um, Eden Straw, which actually was funded, ironically, by the sister of the Shah of Iran, who funded, as you point out in your book, much of the 75 International Women's Conference. Um, and when you see what happened in Iran following that conference, the role of uh, women as in the uh, overthrow of the Shah becomes hugely important. I mean, it's larger in my understanding than it ever had been before, um, because I think some gender and the revolution in gender that was trying, that elites were trying to put forward became a you know, a, a very contentious tool and spawned a backlash um, in a larger way than I had uh, realized uh, before um, and read your book. Uh, obviously that backlash is now global and we can get to the backlash that all of this has spawned because I think, you know, from today's perspective, it does seem incredible that that's all happened. I mean, we should point out that in 1975, you know, we had a, a Republican president uh, forward in the United States and yet the administration supported an international women's movement and sent a delegation from the United States. Uh, you just can't conceive of that happening today. And in fact, more and more, the UN doesn't want to have these meetings because the playgrounds for uh, conservatives and right-wingers who want to undo the agenda um, that was so carefully built. But before we get to the question, let's talk about some of the other institutional structures like uh, INSTRAW, which um, I said earlier, was supported by the Iranians and meant to be in Iran and then moved to the Caribbean. But it's an organization that has provided the data, global data, around the status of women. And you can't conceive of the kinds of changes that have happened in the world um, for women without you know, somebody having collected all the information that's needed to justify those changes. You also mentioned UNIFEM, which is now incorporated into UN Women, but was part of the UN development apparatus of UNDP that was specifically aimed at women rather than giving men who, particularly in many uh, rural and agricultural communities, don't do the work, rather than giving them money or giving money for infrastructure that benefited elites and didn't get down the food chain, UNIFEM really did invest in trying to provide economic opportunity for women in the ground and uh, spawn, help spawn the whole revolution in small investments in women, um, microfinance and, and um, finance, um, as well as uh, women's world banking, which, you know, help from the outside. Um, you also mentioned uh, international and reg regional NGOs such as Dawn that we've now talked about, but also the whole uh, national movements that commissions on the status of women. Um, we've had one in the United States, but we wrote more robust as, it, as these national commissions did every, elsewhere in the world um, once the UN meetings called attention um, to the importance of governments to basically and build institutions in a practical way to carry forward and realize. Any further comments on, you know, on some of that inst institutional building yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that people sometimes forget about the UN is that um, it is, in a lot of ways, one of its critical roles is that it's a, it is an information, it's a, a sort of knowledge production entity. It, it gathers data, it analyzes a lot of it. I think we think about that right now in the context of a global pandemic because the WHO has played such an important role. But in terms of, of women's rights, you know, the, 
the mantra forever, the kind of, you know, rejoinder was always, well, we just don't have enough data about what's happening. We don't have enough data about all of these inequalities. And so part of what INSTRA and to some extent UNIFEM also was doing was collecting that data. I mean, there was a certain amount of data just from time use studies and so forth, but collecting all of the data about the amount of labor that women were doing and, and the um, sort of health inequalities and so forth. And to be honest, one of the biggest, I mean, this is in part because of the legacy of Esther Bostrop, the economist that I mentioned before, but one of the biggest legacies of that 1975 conference is the field of feminist economics, which in some ways comes out of these observations that women like Bostrop were making. Uh, and someone like Marilyn Waring, who is still quite active, um, who pointed out that you know the GDP and the, the international version of GDP, which is a system of national accounts, doesn't count anything that really matters to us, right? And so I think all of that stuff really comes out of that moment um, that it's, it's about creating certain structures, as you pointed out, but it's also about the knowledge that builds those structures and, and really rethinking how knowledge gets produced. The microcredit stuff, um, you know, it has a much longer history that has to, you know, back in early modern Germany, but the modern microcredit movement really gets going with women's world banking. It's a legacy of all of this. So, so that I think is really important. I do think, I mean, to get back to the civil society question, so Dawn, I mean, organizations like, like Dawn um, and, and others, there is a recognition in those that they want to work with and collaborate with organizations in the global north. But a lot of those organizations also want to have, so Dawn, one of the prerequisites is that you have to be living in and from the global south. I mean, that's the, that's the way it functions. It has always been headquartered in the global south. Its headquarters have moved around. Um, it's been in Rio and Fiji and Bangalore and all, all over the place. But, um, and so I, I think there is a recognition that there needs to be um, organizing at different scales. So at the global scale and at the very, very local scale, the kind of community and village level, but also that, that there needs to be organizing that happens um, within regions and within localities uh, that, that builds networks among more commonly situated peoples. And then there also needs to be um, organizations that cross and often the ones that cross the, those sort of um, geographic or geopolitical divides are more um, specific in terms of the issues they work on, right? So they might work on um, uh, femicide and gender violence, or they might work on, you know, access to family planning, or they might work on on more specific issues. Whereas Dawn is a much, it's it's brief is much broader in terms of the kinds of issues it works on. Although it does, Dawn does tend to focus more on um, economic. And ecological issues, I would say, but but I think those are some some important legacies, and those have have those have continued. I mean, Dawn still exists and, and is still quite active, and a lot of the other sort of regional NGOs um, are, are still quite active. So I just want to uh, continue on this um, thread of feminist economics um, and uh, talk a little bit about. Uh, what happened, um, I, we're running out of time here. We kind of, there's so much we've tried to cover. Perhaps we should have focused in on a shorter time frame. But I do think that people don't um, have a clear understanding of why there hasn't, norms have changed. We've agreed to that. But, but why there hasn't been more practical change, why women aren't doing better around the world. And uh, one of the interesting um, aspects of your book and of uh, the work that I've done is pointing out that there were promises made at a time that, uh, you know, 
between 75 and 95 that you can't imagine being made today. Um, just been a change in globalization and in the impacts of globalization um, that has evaporated the kind of idealism um, that informed the women's movement in this period, in my view. We simply haven't had the kind of investment that is necessary to support the very bold promises that were made to women because rights and the achievement of rights, as Eleanor Roosevelt herself famously said in the early days of the UN, require resources. You know, she, she promised right, but, but she said that the UN would build institutions like UN Development Program and uh, UNICEF and by the UN, the World Bank, that she hoped would provide resources to realize those rights. The resources haven't really developed and um, adequately. The UN is a, itself an underfunded institution. The countries that are should be the recipient of these resources aren't getting them because of growing inequalities as a result of neoliberal policies that took root you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. Deprived countries in the global south of robust public sectors to invest in uh, the kinds of resources that women need to balance work and family, to get better educations, better healthcare, more robust public sectors to employ them, that sort of thing. So ironically, the best idea, or one of the best ideas that you talk about, um, the ideas of a feminist economic, like economist like Esther Bossera, uh, who worked within the UN system, that that simply hasn't happened. And that explains, it seems to me, a lot of the disillusion among some women with the unfulfilled promise of this UN agenda. Yeah, I think that one of the things that, you know, we're, we're speaking in the middle of a global pandemic, and much of the world is at home and uh, trying to, and, and, you know, we now talk about the front line of the war on COVID-19 as being these jobs, uh, many of them done by women that have to do with providing care and providing sustenance and so forth. And I think that one of the things that came out of this the decade for women or, or even if you look at those two decades in 75 to 95, was it the need for much more attention to the labor that women were performing that wasn't in any way visible in any of the economic structures. And so as we moved further and further into the territory of neoliberalism, that is to say into the territory where everything had to be counted in some way, it really effaced considerable amount of effort overwhelmingly done all over the world by women that as we can see in the present moment is actually what sustains lives and sustains communities and so i think that one of the things that that not just both but others were trying to get us to focus on was how to kind of pivot toward that and and really attend to some of the contributions that women were making that that just aren't and still aren't showing up on on any of the you know, it's showing up in any of the economic data. And that I think, I mean, I just, well, I, I was just say one of the things that's really striking is there's been a revival of a lot of these movements in the 1970s. The Wages for Housework movement was, which was, you know, big in the 70s, has returned and is now, you know, I think a younger, a younger generation of women are rediscovering some of these movements in ways that are really uh, fascinating to me. So I just want to uh, continue on this thread of feminist economics um, and, uh, talk a little bit about 
what happened, um, I, we're running out of time here. We kind of, there's so much we've tried to cover. Perhaps we should have focused in on a shorter time frame. But I do think that people don't um, have a clear understanding of why there hasn't, norms have changed. We've agreed to that. But, but why there hasn't been more practical change, why women aren't doing better around the world. And one of the interesting um, aspects of your book and of uh, the work that I've done is pointing out that there were promises made at a time between 75 and 95 that you can't imagine being made today. Um, just been a change in globalization and in the impacts of globalization um, that has evaporated the kind of idealism that informed the women's movement in this period, in my view. We simply haven't had the kind of investment that is necessary to support the very bold promises that were made to women because rights and the achievement of rights, as Eleanor Roosevelt herself famously said in the early days of the UN, require resources. You know, she, she promised right, but, but she said that the UN would build institutions like UN Development Program and uh, UNICEF and by the UN, the World Bank, that she hoped would provide resources to realize those rights. The resources haven't really developed and um, adequately. The UN is a itself an underfunded institution. The countries that are should be the recipient of these resources aren't getting them because of growing inequalities as a result of neoliberal policies that took root you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s. Deprived countries in the global south of robust public sectors to invest in uh, the kinds of resources that women need to balance work and family, to get better educations, better health care, more robust public sectors to employ them, that sort of thing. So ironically, the best idea, or one of the best ideas that you talk about, um, the ideas of a feminist economic, like economists like Esther Bossera, uh, who work within the UN system, that, that simply hasn't happened. And that explains, it seems to me, a lot of the disillusion among some women with the unfulfilled promise of this UN agenda. One, one of the things that's happening in the context of, the, of this pandemic, particularly with people um, sheltering in place, is that I think actually men and women both, if they're parents, are recognizing that all of this labor, that they're working harder than ever, but the economy is contracting, right? And so the reason the economy is contracting, even though people are working harder than ever, is that that's not counted as productivity. Like in the economic framework that we, under which we currently live, we don't see all of that labor as productive labor. And, you know, there is this, uh, this series of feminist observations from the 1970s that talk about the importance of recognizing social reproduction as part of that. But I, I think that that's, I, I do wonder if one outcome of the current moment is going to be a greater recognition of that labor. Or maybe I should say, I hope that one outcome of the current moment is, is a recognition that all of this labor that has been completely pushed to the side is unproductive gets recognized for its importance. And not just that, I, I think you're right about the, the paid labor, but also the unpaid labor. Another silver lining uh, potentially will be uh, the recognition that the, a robust social welfare state to protect people from harm in instances like this pandemic um, is worthy stigma that's been attached to it as a result of uh, conservative or neoliberal administrations valorizing public sector, private sector growth at the expense of the public sector uh, might be reversed. I mean, we might have another 
uh, New Deal moment, so to speak. And of course, the New Deal took root in the United States and robust um, mixed economies and social welfare states in Europe. But there was never enough uh, opportunity for that to develop uh, as part of modernization in the in the developing world. Um, uh, again, stalling the women's agenda. Maybe out of this terrible tragedy, um, it might come. When I'm looking back at some of the notes I, I uh, put together uh, to frame this conversation, and I realize that there's so much uh, we haven't been able to cover. Go back and talk much more about CEDAW as a framework intellectually where the kind of revolution we're talking about economically uh, of valuing private, because I think it is a theoretically uh, an important thing, and maybe we can end here. Um, it, it's an it was, it's an important document because it defines women's equality in a very new way, very different than we had thought about women's equality. Um, I'm a, a member, uh, not you were not, you're much younger, but I'm a member of that, uh, you know, second wave of feminism uh, in the late 1960s and 1970s is when I came of age. You know, there was a kind of constant conversation even back then as to how we should approach uh, equality for women. Should we valorize simply a parity with men or should we concern ourselves with feminist difference and the form of uh, early in our history in the United States, protective labor legislation, you know, that assumed women were different and needed to be protected, but it essentially licensed, you know, discrimination against them versus equal protection, which didn't necessarily acknowledge differences uh, in terms of needs, special needs for women like childcare, special health care, access to health care, uh, elimination of, you know, so many of the stereotypes. Um, so there are genuine biological differences and certainly many socially constructed differences. CEDAW seems to square the circle on all that. And I think intellectually is such an important document for that reason that the UN has produced. Um, you want to say something in closing about that, and then um, we're getting toward the 60-minute mark. So we have to end here, today, though. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about all this. Yeah. I, so I think, and as you know, um, you know CEDAW has, has remained. It's not signed by everybody. It is in wide force uh, around the world. And it has been a really important tool that, that people on the ground can use. I think that one of the critical things is actually in the name itself, it is the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And so it doesn't confine itself to a sort of narrow political or you know, freedom of expression kind of definitions. And it includes, as you indicate, all of these things about you know, stereotyping and trafficking and um, you know, things that, that have tended not to be in some of these broader um, issues. So, Family planning is a critical one, and, and of course is important uh, this whole time. But but that for um, and and particularly in a moment that like we're seeing now, where there has been a resurgence of violence against women, um, particularly women who are trying to assert themselves in any way, and so that that has been um, that that this has been a tool that these organizations on the ground in countries like you know certainly all over Latin America and India and places like that can go to their governments and say, look, you are a signatory to this convention. You have a legal obligation. Now, there's not an enforcement mechanism to CEDAW, right? If a signatory to CEDAW 
you know, Brazil is a signatory to CEDAW. Like, are they, I, I think it's safe to say that they're not really upholding its principles all that well these days. But it, it does give some leverage. And I think particularly for these countries where their international reputation is important. It, 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 I, and I should say, the way that that happens, just the technology of that, is that CEDAW includes reporting requirements. So country, countries who sign on to CEDAW have to report how they are progressing on these certain metrics that have to do with women's rights and opportunities. And I, I think all of that, it, it may seem mechanical or reformist in some circles, but it actually is quite important. And it is in also part of, I think, the sort of knowledge production um, role of, of the United States in general. Again, we're getting to the 60 minute mark. I, I do want to say that it's uh, poorly understood in the United States because we are the one global outlier along with, you know, a, a company of Iran, Sudan, that sort of thing. But uh, we don't know much ratified it because of the crazy high standards for ratification of treaties in our Senate um, and the uh, chokehold that Republicans opposed to both giving up sovereignty, but also to giving rights to women have held for so many years. We could have a whole other hour's conversation reached our limit. Um, thanks so much, Jocelyn, for taking time out of your very busy day. I know you're finishing your semester at Duke uh, to talk to me about this for the uh, blog of the Ralph Bunch Institute, which as you know, has historically been trying to create narratives about the United Nations, complicated but noble history. Thanks so much, Jocelyn. Thank you. This has been a treat. Great. Bye. That's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Ellen Chesler and Professor Jocelyn Alcott for their insights into the role of women in the development of global governance institutions. I also want to thank Christo Voinoff for helping on the technological side. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying see you next time on International Horizons.